this short paragraph in Matthew reiterates a central theme of the whole Bible that all of us should understand. That God receives the sinner and rejects from afar the self-righteous who doesn't see their need for God. Jesus had, come to save, had Jesus come to save the righteous, his coming would have been pointless. Because righteous men don't need to be saved. They're already good enough. They're already fine on their own. They don't need a savior. Only those who are aware that they are sinners see their need for redemption, see their need to be saved. And you don't have to be a diligent Bible scholar to discover these truths. It's all over the scriptures. And even if you just back up a few pages to Matthew chapter 1, you could see this for yourself. You will see a list of broken people making up the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You can see that for yourself. You will see prostitutes, adulterers, murderers, proud men, and just about every other sin you could imagine. And that's Jesus' family. That's the family lineage that he came from. In fact, you'll find King David in there, who himself was a murderer, a deceiver, an adulterer. And yet, he was known as a man after God's own heart. Interesting that he didn't receive that title because he was a good man and his ways were perfect. He received that title in the scriptures because he loved God and looked to him for his salvation and for him to be his righteousness, not not to himself or his own good works. Big difference there. And today in this passage, we will see sinners made righteous through faith and self-righteous people who are content in their own sins, be condemned in their own pride. So looking at this text through a more, more through the microscope than the telescope, we see in verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. So here we are finally introduced nine chapters into the author of the book of Matthew, Matthew, the, the, uh, the follower of Jesus, one of the 12 apostles. But when he met him, as we meet him in this story, he's not exactly the triumphant and righteous, victorious apostle of the Lord. He was kind of not, in, not exactly a hero of Israel. He was a tax collector. Now, I'm emphasizing that because tax collectors were hated even more then than they are now. <laughs> and look, I know none of you guys were jumping for joy last, last month when you guys had to pay your taxes. Right? <laughs> so, it was even worse back then because Israel was not an independent nation at this time in history. They were part of the Roman Empire. And while they enjoyed many freedoms and had a lot of their own autonomy, there was no confusion in the culture who was really in charge. It was the Romans. And the Jews absolutely hated this fact. And there was no more visual representation of this oppression than their local tax collector. Especially because it was often one of their own people who was collecting taxes from them. 
So for, for this reason, tax collectors were considered traitors by the Jews. And they were, they were hated even more than the Romans. Who, the actual ones, because these were considered traitors, people of their own who had betrayed their trust. And the, these people were considered, these tax collectors were considered perpetually unclean according to Jewish customs, similar, comparable to a pig. Uh, any Jew who, was, who entered such a job would have been ostracized from the community, barred from entering the synagogue, cut off from the entire social network uh, that was the Jewish community at that time 2,000 years ago. So why would anybody take such a job? If, if it has such horrible social repercussions, why take a, such a horrible job? Why does anybody take a bad job? Money. It is the root of all evil, all kinds of evil, after all, isn't it? Because tax collectors were given a figure that they needed to collect from, the, from the, their local area of governance. But anything they collected above that, guess who got to keep it? The tax collector. So they, they were, once they hit that number, they were told, okay, this is what you need to bring to Caesar. The rest you can keep for yourself. They went to made sure they collected every last penny that they could because they got to keep it. They could easily amass a large personal fortune on the backs of their brothers and sisters that they would exhort. So this would attract only the most selfish, the, sa- the shameless, the most callous, the most greedy people imaginable. And so I go into that much detail so that we understand Matthew and his friends that we're going to meet later in this passage are, would have been considered the most vile and wretched people in Israel at the time. They were under no delusion that they were righteous, that they were pious, that they were going to be saved. They had no, no expectation except judgment for their deeds. So these men, no doubt, had received nothing but judgment and contempt from the Jewish authorities at this time. And to be clear, those Jewish authorities weren't wrong for pointing out that what these guys were doing was wrong. It's not wrong to point out uh, someone's a sinner if they're a sinner, but their failure was to provide a solution. (laughs) You know, there's no shortage in our world today of people pointing out our problems, right? Turn on the news, you find people pointing out problems on on this side. The left blames the right, the right blames the left. Someone needs to stand in the center and blame both of them. That's much closer to the truth. The world needs solutions, not people pointing out problems. We have enough of that. So the, the Pharisees, the legalists, the people in charge of Jewish society at the time, their law-based approach offered no hope to these outcasts like Matthew, to the poor, the downtrodden sinners. Only the well-to-do, the outwardly pious, had any hope in their system. And this was the truth, that Jesus was in the process of turning upside down because the truth was the exact opposite of what they believed. Now, it's interesting how fast Matthew seems to make a decision in this, po- in this passage. Just follow me. Okay, we're, let's go. <laughs> Leaves his whole life behind and follows Jesus. 
Well, word about Jesus would have been spreading like wildfire through this region. And if you've been following us through the whole chat, through the whole book of Matthew, you would have seen that. So it's safe to assume that this isn't actually the first time Matthew had heard of Jesus. But when it was, but when, but he was ready at this point, at the right time, that he was ready to make a commitment to Jesus once he was asked directly, follow me. He had weighed the cost, no doubt, and was ready to follow him. Now, Matthew actually took the biggest risk out of all of the apostles from a career standpoint. If this whole apostle thing didn't work out for Peter, he could go back to fishing. Same thing with most of the other apostles. Not so with Matthew. Once he left his post with the Romans, they're not giving him his job back. But nor could he go back to the Jews because they wouldn't accept him. Because he was unclean as a tax collector. He, he would, took this all or nothing approach. That if this didn't work out, there was no other way back. <laughs> this will have to be another sermon, come to think of it. But we all ought to have this all or nothing approach to Jesus. Being half in doesn't help. Being half committed to him, giving homage to him on occasion, that's not how it works. He's either your savior, he's Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all to you. So with that being said, a festive occasion follows this conversation, and indeed his conversion in verse 9 as we go into verse 10, where it says, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came to him and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And, and as I read that, I can't help but to remember that verse that says that, that there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. And that's certainly Matthew here. <laughs> and at the same time, there is a banquet after Matthew repents. There's a beautiful parallel there. Beautifully earthly parallel to a heavenly reality. Now, not wanting to brag in his own writing, Matthew neglects to point out that as the others in the other gospel writers write that he's throwing this banquet in his own home and it's invited the only other people who are willing to associate with him other tax collectors and other sinners it says why does it say sinners i thought everyone was a sinner well yeah that's true so he's obviously using this in a relative sense in this passage um, he meant other outcasts traitors and those who would have seemed unredeemable to the Pharisees and the legalists of his day that we're about to hear from. So had Matthew used the term sinners in the way that we all have come to associate as, he's had to invite the whole town. Because as you, you all know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have sinned and made mistakes. So this is a beautiful picture, though. That those who had no hope from the culture, those who offer, with the culture around them offering nothing but judgment and contempt, here they are, reclining with Jesus. How beautiful is that? That those who had no place in the world or even the religious community had peace with Jesus. Let me tell you, just real briefly, the modern-day outcasts are not opposed to Jesus. They, they, if Jesus was here today, he would go to those who were outcast. 
But it's ironically that the modern day legalists, the modern day Pharisees, those are the ones who are driving these people away with their overemphasis on outward focused religion that make it feel like I I have no place here, I have no home here. We ought to be able to welcome these people into our communities, into our churches. But more on that later. We'll have to keep this going to verse 11 where it says, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's hilarious that the Pharisees don't even have the courage to confront Jesus directly. They had to go through his disciples. Because that's what cowards do. They don't go and solve their problems directly. They go talk about, talk about people to other people. They, not the people who can solve their dilemma or make peace with them, but they to go around people's backs. That's what people do. They make accusations and stay behind the scenes. <laughs> and they're saying this. They're saying, you know, oh, why do you associate with such people? Because the Pharisees stayed far away from anyone who was not considered righteous and pious like they were. Because people in the world, those people are messy. <laughs> they say things wrong. They don't know our Christian lingo. They struggle with sins that are different than our sins, because our sins aren't as bad, right? Right? <laughs> they, they, don't, they, they struggle with things that we don't even talk about in church, and they say curse words. <gasps> oh, <laughs> Scandalous. Now, I'm putting on a bit of a, going a little theatrical right now, but are we like this? Is the church like this? Have we embodied this very thing that Jesus is against? The very thing keeping sinners from salvation is the church sometimes. Oh, may it not be said, but it seems to be true when we look at the world. When we look at ourselves, I mean, let's be honest. What would happen if a group of tattooed teenagers were to walk in the front door right now and sit down? How would we receive them? Because they look different than us or sound different than us, talk using different lingo than we are used to. What about a homosexual couple? What about a transgendered person? Just because they struggle with things different than we do doesn't make them less redeemable. Look, their sins will look different than yours, but, we, but they all need the gospel as much as I do. I am just as lost without Christ as the, any next person living here in town, whatever they struggle with. And so fortunately for our text this morning, and for all of us today, Jesus hears their conversation. Jesus overhears this bickering, this rumor that there's going around behind his back and responds in verse 12 by saying, when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And man, isn't that true, guys? 
The person who genuinely believes they have an illness will go to the doctor to be made well. But the person who isn't so sure might stay home, not seek help, potentially not get treated, and potentially die due to their own stubbornness. And the last thing the Pharisees thought they needed was a savior. Because they didn't think they were sick. They didn't think they had this sickness that we all have called sin that separates us from God. They thought they were fine on their own. So they weren't looking for a Savior even when the Savior came to look to them. Even when Jesus is standing right before them, they couldn't recognize who he was or what he came to do because that's not who they were looking for. Our problem is so many people think just like these Pharisees in that sense. That, because most people would say today that they're a good person. And good people don't need saviors. Bad people need saviors. And I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. That's why I don't need a savior. That's why I don't need Jesus in my life. I'm doing okay without Jesus. If I need him, I know where to go. There's churches everywhere. I'll go get the help. And... Uh, like I said, it's often the church that stops these people from realizing their, our, our universal problem. One of those nutcases on TV once said that 99.9% of people are good people with good hearts. This is one of those televangelists. You guys would all recognize his name if I said it out loud. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says in Romans 3.10 that there is none righteous not even one it's a pretty big difference between none and 99.9 percent of people that's a big difference between what the bible says and what others are saying and if their claims are to be believed who's in hell probably just hitler stalin and mao zedong that's about it of course if if most people are to be believed but yet, what did Jesus say just two chapters ago? That the way was wide that leads to destruction, and the way is narrow that leads to life. I know another positive, encouraging message from Pastor John, right? And look, I know I could get excused, accused of having negative tones in my messages, but let me tell you, it's the, mo the most loving thing you can do for someone is to tell them if they have a problem. It helps nobody when you know there's a problem and you say nothing. It's not loving to give someone who struggles with alcoholism a drink. That's called enabling. You're participating in their destruction when you do that. And the same way, the most loving thing I can do is tell somebody that they're a sinner if they're a sinner. So that we will all see our collective need, hear that word again, collective, and come to our Savior to receive forgiveness. But not stop just where the Pharisees did, just pointing out that they have a problem, telling them that God has provided the solution. Tell them that we have been given an opportunity to be forgiven through Jesus Christ, through what he has done on the cross, and yeah, that's uncomfortable to say, but it's the best medicine to the broken heart. I could spend all day on that point, but we must go forward. Verse 13, Jesus says, go and learn what this means. 
I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. To say go and learn like that is a was a common rebuke by the rabbis of that time. It's, it, it's, it's saying to someone, you know, you didn't know, who did not know something, they ought to have known. Which is fascinating because the Pharisees boasted about their knowledge of the scriptures, uh, seeing themselves as scholars and authorities on all things scripture. And here Jesus is giving them this common rebuke. Go and learn what this means. Figure this one out. Like, like, they're, uh, like they're students again. So it had a nice nasty sting to it. I love that. But what does it mean when Jesus says he de- God desires mercy and not sacrifice? Should we all collectively go and learn what that means? It's a quote from Hosea chapter 6 verse 6. And the word sacrifice there embodies the idea of religious ritualism. You think about what religion means. It's bringing a sacrifice. What do our, you know, you think of laying a sacrifice on an altar. You think of, you look at some other branches of Christianity beyond the biblical ones. And it's about, and it's this emphasis on your sacrifice that you have to do. You need to sacrifice for this holiday. You need to sacrifice something for Lent. You need to do this. You need to do that. It's... That's what they're talking about here when we see this word sacrifice. The rituals, the the law, the feasts that they would have had in Israel 2,000 years ago, that's what it's talking about here. And good as they all were, it's not, the sacrifice wasn't the end of their religion. Like they were treating it like it was. The point of religion wasn't to lay a sacrifice on the altar. It was to have community with God. Love is the end of our faith, not sacrifice. That's what this is getting at. I don't have time to rehash it, but you saw in our first reading this morning in Isaiah chapter 1, God's really letting Israel have it. Saying, my soul hates all of these sacrifices, the incense, the the bull offerings, this offering, that offering. Stop it. Stop all of these feasts and things. God takes no delight in that. He's wearied from the worship of Israel. Even though they were saying all the right things, offering all the right prayers. Lit the incense, went to the feast, made the offerings, but their hearts were completely divorced from their actions. That's what God is calling them out for. God was calling for a cease to all of those rituals until their hearts were right again. To have all that activity with the, without the heart behind it is, that, that's the church of Sardis that we read about in Revelation chapter 3 that says it had a reputation of being alive, but was dead. May that never be said to us. May we never cling to our traditions to such, with such a death grip that we just go through the motions of religion when our hearts are no longer involved. And so too, may we do what these people neglected. May we love the outcasts. May we reach the lost and worship from the heart not just do the outwardly pious and righteous things. 
And in conclusion, Jesus says, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In parallel passages, they add the word to repentance. They calling sinners to repentance, which is a huge difference maker. Because the only difference between me and somebody going to hell is that I've simply repented. I was going this way with my life, and I've changed my ways, and I'm going for Christ now. I've made that decision. I've decided to follow Jesus. That's the only difference. Not because I've done more good deeds than bad deeds. It's because I've trusted in what Jesus has done on the cross for me and for you. That's all that it is. Because I'm not good enough to save myself. But he was good enough to save even me and even you. And I don't even know you. But God does. He sees what you've done. He sees what you've gone through. He knows your life. And he's ready to embrace you, to forgive you, to show his abounding, steadfast love to you. If you just recognize what these Pharisees could not see through their own self-righteousness, that they're not a good person, but someone who needed to be redeemed. And Jesus has offered the rest. So let's not miss the point of this passage. Who did Jesus come for? The the self-righteous? Or sinners? Who are we trying to minister to as a church? What's the point of this church? (laughs) You know, many churches today are intentionally trying to reach the well-to-do of their communities, the celebrities, the influencers. Good grief, I saw one church that apparently has a, of large church that has a section in the front for celebrities that come to visit. You don't need, you guys all know how wrong that is. That's a direct violation of James 2 and just gross at its surface. May that not be who we are trying to go for. Many churches have given up trying to reach people all together, sinners and the well-to-do, and they're just trying to be comfortable. Keep their own groups together and let's just be happy being us. Maybe they'll just steal somebody from one church and, you know, another church in the area, not actually trying to go out into the world where the actual sinners are, where the people like Matthew are, just letting them be. Who are we here in South Amboy? Who are we trying to reach in the first place? Are we attempting to minister to the broken? to the lost, to the prodigals? Are we, or are we aiming at comfortable religious people like ourselves? Are we quick to receive and minister to that person who is a sinner whose sins look different than ours? To the outcast, to the person who doesn't get our lingua, who doesn't speak our comfortable Christian language? Because Jesus does not desire his church to be a monument to our own holiness, but as a hospital for sinners like we used to be to find refuge and grace. Amen.